person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person. Because whatever lives in the ground beyond the pet cemetery ain't human at all. The Indians knew that. They stopped using that burial ground when the ground went sour. Don't think about doing it, Lewis. Place gets holier, but the place is evil. Welcome to Now Playing's Pet Cemetery Retrospective Series. Today is Thanksgiving Day for cats, but only if they came back from the dead. Part of the Now Playing Stephen King movie series. Place to bury our pets and remember them. Might seem scary, but it's not. Hosted by Arnie. Are you happy, Mommy? Stuart. I'm sure things will be fine. I'm not. And Jacob. Scared you, didn't I? Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new installment of this series. And keep coming back as we continue looking at all the movies based on the writings of Stephen King. It's not some campfire story. And join Arnie at BooksAndNachos.com for in-depth reviews of all of Stephen King's books and short stories. Daddy's gonna do something really bad! These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Thank you for introducing that colorful phrase into my daughter's vocabulary. Listener discretion is advised. First I played with Dad, then Mommy came, and I played with Mommy. Now I want to play with you. I don't want to be buried in a pet cemetery. I don't want to live my life again. Today we're discussing Pet Cemetery. Starring Jason Clark, Amy Siemens, and John Lithgow. Directed by Kevin Kolsch and Dennis Widmeyer. This is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, back from the Pet Cemetery for another review in the series. And Stuart. And the host that don't want to be buried in a pet cemetery, Jacob. I thought we were done. I thought Edward Furlong had done what no Ornerco truck could do and killed the franchise dead. Nobody was going to resurrect it. And yet here we are, Paramount and D. Bonaventure Pictures decided now's the time for a new pet cemetery. Yeah, King's hot again because of it. Yeah, we got to put this on Pennywise, right? I mean, that first chapter of it was so huge. I think it's the biggest horror movie of all time. The gross was enormous, so 300 million plus. So I was excited. I'm going to go ahead and say, personally, I was excited. I thought, you know, this is the time to do a renaissance on King. It'll usher in a whole new endearment for his work. And we'll get good directors working on his projects again and bringing them to the screen. And books that I loved will now get the movies that they deserved. That was pretty much how I felt walking out of it. And a year later, I was all over it. There was two things that happened. One, I watched the whole season of Castle Rock, and it just never got better. <laughs> I don't know if you guys tried. I'm going to try before we get to it and things, but I haven't. I've heard good things. I heard them, and then I saw what I saw, and it was a lot of talented people in a meandering story that really wasn't very scary or intriguing or Twin Peaks or anything, and it just... No, 
It just felt like a J.J. Abrams surprise box that I wanted to return to sender. And then I read a novel he wrote last year, The Outsider, which starts out great. It felt like it for the Trump era. There was so much about it that felt timely and classic at the same time. And I'm like, I love this. And then, you know, it all goes to hell in the last 200 pages. And of course, the novel is like 800 pages long. Hey, if you listen to my books and nachos from the early days, Kings had problems with endings. Yeah, and they haven't improved. So I, I'm not saying I'm not excited anymore, but it grounded me. Yeah, you're saying, oh, they're going to get hot directors to do these films. This has two directors, don't know either of them. Yeah, I bit the bullet for this review because I feel like I needed, someone needed to vet who these guys were and why would these two, Kevin Kolsch and Dennis Widmeyer, don't know them from anybody. How did they get this gig? A gig that, keep in mind, we talked about it on the first show. Stephen King was so protective of this, he only would allow them to make his script verbatim. Why is he letting totally random people make something? They must have made something really incredible, right? Well, if they did, I didn't watch it. What I watched was their 2014 indie horror movie, Starry Eyes. It feels like what a lot of horror movies feel like to me these days. A retro love fest. Let's layer it with a John Carpenter score and we'll make it look like the cinematography in Rosemary's Baby and we'll do all these retro things to make you think it's a 70s, 80s throwback. The whole plot felt kind of like a David Lynch, I'm on the Lost Highway heading to Mulholland Drive, actress trying to understand her part and make it in Hollywood kind of psycho horror. It didn't leave much of an impression at all. I certainly didn't look at that and think, yep, these are the people that need to be making major Hollywood films. And like we talked about last week with Shazam, though, sometimes you find the up-and-comers who work cheap and have a passion for the project, and this was a script that was kicked around Hollywood for a while. Yeah, it's already been made. I mean... No, I'm saying this new script. Yeah, I don't know how much new is in there. We'll talk about it, but <laughs> why do this again? If you notice, there were three writing credits at the start of this movie, based on the novel by Stephen King, and then screen story by somebody, and he's the one who had a script that I think had the changes we're going to talk about, and then they brought in another writer because the directors had some concerns about that script, and so there was a screenplay credit by different than the screen story, different from the original story novel, so it gets a little bit confusing. I have immersed myself into the press junkets and everything I could find out about this. Have they said then why, if it was this huge thing, the biggest horror movie ever, King has so much material... Why go to this one again? Why why not do something new? Even it, I mean, yeah, that had a TV show, but then they made it into a film. It seems like there's a lot of material. Pet Cemetery seems like a weird one to remake. Not really. It's one of his best-selling novels. It's one of the ones people hold up even before the 89 movie and say this is one of his best books. It's the one he never wanted to have published. I'm starting to think his creative impulses might all be a little off-kilter sometimes, but... I mean, he says this movie is, and I quote, fucking great. This one that we're going to talk about today. Yes. Okay. <laughs> they must have stuck to his notes that he gave them then. I honestly wonder, and this is conspiracy theory, and I hate it when I read this on the internet and conspiracy theory, like Marvel's paying critics to slam DC reviews. But I honestly got to wonder after so many movies, if there's a Stephen King gives you a positive quote writer, and 
Like they bump an extra zero on his pay. He's got something invested in this. Yeah, if you like this movie, you'll go buy that book and more book sales, more royalties for him. Conflict of interest there. But usually I go the opposite way of King. If he loves the film, uh, that's a warning sign to me. There wasn't a whole lot of talk about why Pet Cemetery, other than it had already been in discussion even before it. And once it happened, obviously, I imagine we are in for a new Children of the Corn, a new Silver Bullet. Whoever has rights to something named King, I'm calling it now, Mangler Theatrical Reboot. Uh. Yeah, I think the reason why we're not getting the new Mangler or, or something like that is because, yeah, they want to go to the most well-known titles. And Pet Cemetery is weird because a lot of people do like that first movie. A lot of people feel like you don't need to remake that one because it holds up. I don't think we ended up feeling as strongly about that. I felt like I liked it in childhood and coming back to it, I felt a lot about it was silly. But yeah, of all the ones that they've screwed up or the ones that I feel like could come back stronger, Pet Cemetery wouldn't be on the top of my list. But I can understand why Hollywood, they look at the ones that made money. Pet Cemetery made $60 million, so let's do the hit. You know, other than The Shining, I don't know that there's any Stephen King movie we've reviewed or that I've seen that I don't think could be made better upon a reboot. I like Pet Cemetery. I like the original one quite a bit, but it had flaws. Huge. A lot of them were acting related. Yeah, the production value. I mean, it was a five million production with bad actors. So yes, they can absolutely do better a second time. But how much room will they give to really rework King? I mean, there were problems with the novel. There were things that I would want to see completely redone. As far as I can tell, this is mostly a Gus Van Zant psycho remake with one big twist they stupidly spoiled in the second trailer advertising this movie. I have no idea why they told us Ellie was going to die instead of Gage. Look, I think they had to tell you, look, we're doing something different because I took my wife to go see this with me. She had not seen the trailers and this movie starts and she's like, oh, this is, is this a shot for shot remake? I'm like, no, there's a big twist coming up. I feel like, yeah, they're like, we got to do something different. And so let's reveal that this isn't the same movie that came out in the 90s. The directors thought the trailers gave away too much. Yes. And I think that that would have been a wonderful surprise. Yes. Stephen King was consulted on the change and signed off on it ahead of time. Yeah, I, to be clear, I'm not talking yet about whether I liked what they did to the material, but if that is your biggest change, you don't tell people before they walk into the movie. I mean, unless you're going to take it in a radically different direction, after that point, I don't know why you would spoil the one thing that's surprising. And Stuart, I did think that it was going to go in a different direction. I, and I'm like, oh, if they're going to reveal this, I remembered something you guys talked about, a Wendigo or something, some Indian monster that roamed the woods. I'm like, oh, are we going to get that in this film? Are they going to show us that? I don't remember if that showed up in the book or not, because I had never read it. It did make me think, someone who hadn't read the book that doesn't have a lot of love for that 90s one, okay, maybe they are going to do something totally different with this film because they're showing me that change. And I know people got mad about that change. There were conspiracy theories around why the change. People were mad about John Lithgow's delivery of sometimes dead is better. Um, they're like, no, it's got to be Herman Munster delivering that line. Yes, it does. I'm just going to say right now that that line, if you like anything about that movie, it's got to be Fred Gwynn. And it is going to be hard for Lithgow to stead in Fred Gwynn's shadow. And sometimes dead is better by Fred Gwynn 
the best thing they could do is just not use the line because it's kind of like the reason no Spider-Man since Maguire has actually said with great power comes great responsibility. They hint at it, but they don't say it. I think sometimes dead is better. Maybe they should have just said, sometimes it might be better if you stay dead. You know, just don't go toe-to-toe with Gwyn because in this case, you're going to lose. But obviously, I think the guy who played Lewis, an actor whose name I don't even remember... (laughs) and I don't see in much, and Denise Crosby. The only one who really rocked that movie other than Fred Gwynn was the boy who played Gage. And the cat. Yeah, the cat was good. But I saw that trailer. I was mad that they spoiled it. Having seen the movie, fuck that trailer, because it really... I wonder what I would have thought if I hadn't seen it. Absolutely. I just, yeah, want to really underline, fire every ad executive that worked on that film. What a fuck-up. Why Why are you guys so upset about this? I'm not the fan of the book. I'm not a King fan. So for me, eh, whatever. So why are you guys as fans of King, at least, so upset by that? Well, to preview some of my thoughts, the movie is not exactly the most exciting, and something that would have made a real shock would have woken me up. I agree completely, is that it's... At the point where I wanted the film to get on with it, I knew that it was going to be Ellie who died. And so I feel like a lot of this is a remake of the first one with needless minor changes. To preview my thoughts, I think this film feels like it's standing in the shadow of the 89 film with a lot of references to it and a lot of homages to it that... I don't really think are necessarily deserved. I think they could have gone totally on their own, but they feel like they're remaking a classic and have to pay some tribute to that. Down to the remake of the song at the end of the credits we'll talk about. Oh, so bad. Oh, terrible. I think that that could have shocked me out of my checking the boxes of what's happening and gone, oh shit, what's happening next? That could have really gotten me. The other thing about the trailers that didn't excite me, though, we've talked about him a couple times, and he's so forgettable. I may have already had this conversation, but Jason Clark... I don't understand why people hire him. He's a complete blank to me. He's neither attractive nor unattractive, neither muscular (laughs) nor scrawny, neither good nor bad. He is like white toast actor. Well, that could be what you're going for. I mean, that's if you're wanting the average American, I think that's what he encapsulates. I think he's a good actor. He doesn't have movie star looks is the problem. He really probably does better work on stage, I'm going to bet. But yeah, there's just something about him that's kind of unappealing as a leading man. He was a terrible John Connor. That was total miscast. I don't blame anyone for that movie, but (laughs) yes, he does not have the kind of charisma that's going to turn something around, but he could definitely do better than Dale Midkiff. See, I think it's exactly the same. I think he's today's Dale Midkiff. Not that that he's as bad an actor, but that he's just as bland. I mean, bland is fine. When you're selling the average American family, bland is what you're going for. And I think that's kind of how we're to think of the creeds. Now, all of this said, how excited were you going into this film? I was really excited with the first trailer. I really was. And then the second trailer came and I wasn't against it. I was like, that's interesting. I want to see where it goes. But the more they did trailers and the more I watched interviews with people... I went in a little tepid, like, I'm hoping that this is as good as it. I'll be happy if it's just an improvement on the original Pet Cemetery, but I'm trying to put out of my mind, and this is very hard, what would I think of this movie if I'd never read the book, 
if I'd never seen that first movie. I'll tell you, because I've seen that first movie. I don't recall a whole lot of it. I've never read the book. Seeing the trailers, the first one, it's just kids with animal masks beating the drums. I'm like, oh, you're going for spooky, but you're trying a little bit too hard here. But my hopes were it was just going to be a scary movie. I don't care if it stuck to the book or not. I don't care about the twist it revealed in that second trailer. I just wanted a scary movie. That's what I was hoping for going in. Again, I said it on the first podcast. If they could make a good version with good acting that no one would ever need to go back to the original. And so that was my hope about what they were delivering. But I can't say that there was anything ever in any trailer that gave me the indication that the look of the film or the cast, anything about it captured something that was particularly spooky or got under my skin. It just, it looked very familiar. With the change in trailer two, that I knew they were killing the daughter, and those kids in the animal masks, I really wondered how different it was going to be. I was very curious, is there going to be like a kid cult? Is this like children of the pet cemetery? What are we going to have? Spoiler alert, the kids mean nothing. It's just one scene of kids in creepy masks. But I thought it might be something new and original. So I went in knowing that this was not going to supplant the original, because the original really was an adaptation of King's novel. But what's it going to do then to stand apart from King's novel? Was there anybody in your theater? I would say mine was about a third full. Because this is coming out late. I went on a Sunday morning for showing. And yeah, it was about half full. I was surprised. It was more full than I thought for, for showing on a Sunday. I went on a Saturday afternoon, 4.50 showing. You know, that's usually a weird time to go anyway. It was almost sold out. Marjorie decided to come late and it was lucky the seat next to me was still open. Strangely, a young audience in front of me was a gaggle of like six 14-year-old girls. Oh, we had a family sitting next to us with a small child. I'm like, that kid starts crying. If this gets scary, I'm going to be pissed. I was wondering how 14-year-olds were going to take to this, especially when they were cooing over Tom Holland when he <laughs> had a flash screen in the Avengers Endgame trailer. I just want to know how soon their phones came out. That's going to tell me how, how bored they were. It was about a half hour and I watched the final part of this film under the glow of them texting each other. I'm shocked it took that long. <laughs> <laughs> that may not be a comment on the movie. That may be a comment on the generation. I don't know. Why don't we just stick to the movie? Arnie, give them the plot again and we'll dig up Pet Cemetery. I'm going to be honest. I cut and pasted the previous one and changed some stuff. Of course you did. Switch Ellie for Gage, yeah. <laughs> in fact, in a couple of cases, the words I changed were underlined because I just copied and pasted names from IMDb. In Pet Cemetery, Jason Clark plays Lewis Creed, a doctor who recently relocated his family to Maine so he can work at the university. He picked a new home for his family that's nearly perfect, save for the two-lane highway in front of the house where Ornico trucks speed past all day. Oh, and the fact that on their 50-acre lot lies a pet cemetery where kids go to bury their dead cats, dogs, fish, whatever, and when they do, they have a funeral procession where they literally beat on a drum and wear creepy animal masks. Their across-the-street neighbor Judd, played by John Lithgow, becomes friends with the Creeds and takes a special liking, but not in a creepy way, to the Creeds' grade school-age daughter Ellie, played by Jate Lawrence. So on Halloween, when the family cat church is hitting the road, Judd leads Lewis past the pet cemetery further into the woods to a Native American burial ground. There, Lewis buries the cat, and, as the nursery rhyme goes, the cat came back the very next day, alive but altered, vicious, and carrying a horrible stench with him. Ellie seems to know something's wrong with the cat, 
especially when it claws her arm and hisses at her. Plus, the cat's hair is matted with blood. Really observant, that Ellie. <laughs> Give the thing a bath. That's what I was wondering the whole time. Why don't they just wash it? Lewis can't bring himself to kill the feline, so he takes the cat far from the house to get rid of it, telling his daughter Church ran away. But as the song goes, the cat came back, and Ellie was so happy to see the animal, she ran into the road to greet it and was struck and killed by a speeding truck. The family is grief-stricken, especially Lewis's wife Rachel, played by Andy Seemitz, who has long harbored a phobia of death fostered by childhood events involving a dumbwaiter and the death of her muscular sclerosis suffering older sister Zelda. And a dumbwaiter. Did I mention a dumbwaiter? <laughs> <laughs> it is dumb. <laughs> Stewart's trying to keep it in. <laughs> So Rachel and their young son, Gage, go to stay with Rachel's parents in Boston, but Lewis stays in Ludlow, where, against Judd's advice, he exhumes the body of his dead daughter and reburies Ellie in the Native American grounds. These events bring about the ghost of Victor Pascal, a college student who died from a car accident that Lewis was unable to save, played by Obasa Ahmed. Pascal had tried in vain to ward Lewis away from the cemetery. Failing in that regard, he appears to gauge in dreams and whispers in Rachel's ear until she and Gage drive back to Maine. The daughter does return, but with a penchant for death. She is obsessed with her own resurrection. Seemingly working in tandem with the undead feline church, Ellie first ambushes and kills Judd. When Rachel returns, she realizes the zombie is an abomination, so Ellie kills Rachel and buries her in the cemetery. Lewis tries to re-kill his daughter, but is stabbed in the back by his resurrected wife. Zombie Ellie and Zombie Rachel bury Lewis, so he comes back, and the three undead close in on Gage, who's helpless and trapped inside Rachel's car, as credits roll. And when they start, they also begin on that car. We get a bird's eye view of the farmhouse, the Creed property, as it swoops in, teasing, I guess, what we think we know about the story. There's little tiny bloody handprints on the car door. Something has clearly been dragged inside the front. And we might think that that's all the handiwork of little Gage the murdering zombie kid. Yeah, I definitely thought it was an interesting choice to start with bloody footprints, bloody handprints and things. I think it would take a lot of reflection or a second viewing to really drive home that this is what happened after Gage got killed. I got that. I yeah, mean, but we reflect on movies more than I think the teenage girls in front of me do because we go over notes and things. I wouldn't have put it together normally. I wouldn't have remembered that was the opening shot. I would have thought it started with them coming in their car. I figured this was a flash forward. I mean, we see Judd's house on fire. That would seem like a weird opening. I did think, I'm like, if this is the opening, if this is the start, they just got a tire fire going on across the street. And then I see the blood. I'm like, okay, this is, yeah, then we're going to jump back and see the family. Okay, that's foreshadowing. I just wish that either they would have shown us this scene again at the end or that the scene would have been like not after the final scene. The way TV usually does it is they give you the cliffhanger, like the way Mission Impossible 3 and 4 did it. You see a scene in the middle, and then you cut back to the beginning, and you get to that middle, and then you finish it off. That's what I would have liked this to have been. But no, we got the family coming up, this time from Baston. Nobody has an accent in this movie, despite coming from Baston to Maine. <laughs> so, I'm really, my suspension of disbelief is already tenuous. <laughs> I'm sorry, I have family in Boston and Maine. I say my, those accents with love. 
You know, but the acting is better. We can all agree, right? When we do meet this family, we're not wincing at the line readings. We're not pained by their lack of emotion or the way that they lay it on thick. I hated Ellie in that original movie. And here, she's obviously the focus. They refer to her as Elephant the Great and Terrible, which is, I guess, a callback to the way Zelda was described in the novel. I noticed the Ellie later on in the film when she's a zombie, it gets called the Great and Terrible. I don't remember it at the beginning. I feel like ah, that should have been set up a little bit more as an ironic nickname. It was there. I missed it the first time. It wasn't there enough. I don't know why she's called that, but yeah. I exactly. Show me why she's called that. Don't just say it for half a second and then reference it later in the film. It was a Wizard of Oz reference, actually. It was uh, the Great and Terrible was the nickname of actual the Wizard Oz. Mm -hmm. But it didn't make sense except as foreshadowing for where the film was going to go. I'm going to call it out right now. Clark is fine. Seamitz is good, but Jatay Lawrence is amazing in this film. You did not like Ellie in the first film. I don't recall having a huge problem with her, but she could be improved upon. I take it you didn't go back and watch the film? I did. She's horrible! She's not ruinous. Oh, yes. But Jatay Lawrence here, I feel when watching this the way I felt when seeing Jennifer Lawrence in Winter's Bone. Like, this is an actress who can really make something of herself. She has amazing presence, both as a little girl and as a zombie girl later on, that I liked. I, I was wondering, I checked the last name, I'm like, she's not a Fanning? She looks like a Fanning? <laughs> she acts? She's got that otherworldly, I'm, I'm only 11 years old, but I act like a 30-year-old woman quality to her? I thought for sure she was a Fanning. But she's not. She's a Lawrence and not a Jennifer Lawrence. She's just a kid that hasn't worked much. But uh, I think she's going to work a lot. I agree. I think she is uh, really giving an incredibly nuanced performance and what's become the pivotal family role. Yeah, she has a lot of weight on her shoulders. This movie would make or break on casting that role. If you did these plot twists with the Ellie you had last time, the movie would be MST3K laughable. Yeah, just to flash forward, I, I feel like they made this change so they could have an actor that would be old enough to actually do something as a zombie and create some dread. I mean, they, we'll talk about it. There's difference between a little baby killing you and then, yeah, this nine-year-old child that's able to kind of reflect on where she's been, which I, I really did like her when she comes back as a zombie and her performance there. She was fine here as well. But yeah, I feel like they made this change because they found the right actor that would be better in that role. Yeah, according to King, the change was made because it's easier to work with a little girl than a toddler. I guess they didn't want to go the Chucky animatronic CGI route or something. His exact quote about why he doesn't mind the change. You can take Route 301 and go to Tampa, or you can take Route 17 and go to Tampa, but both times you're coming out in Tampa. You can tell where he summers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Anyway, Ellie is the one to, to see this funeral procession, and she is the one to underline the themes of death the most clearly at the start of this movie that they don't know, or they may have forgotten, that they own the pet cemetery. But behind their house, children will come to wheelbarrow their dead dog to the gravesite in a fantastical parade. Those kids are great at papier-mâché. 
Yeah, except this just annoys me. Unless there is a cult of dead animals going on in this film that justifies this. This is just, uh, well, you know, it's like the snapping game in Conjuring. We got to do something spooky because we're not going to do any horror stuff for the next half hour. So here's a little spooky thing to maybe scare you. I can honestly say I've lost a lot of pets growing up. It's always really hard. I always feel for people when they lose their animal. Do you dress up as the pet to bury it, though? I've never, ever, ever wanted to do anything like this. Yes, it feels way too over the top. It feels like Wicker Man. It feels like they were looking at creepy kid films and saying, what can we do to set a mood? Which would have been fine if that's what this film was going to be. But it's not that film. It's for a scene and that's it. I agree. I went in seeing this in the early trailers and thinking they were really going to do something with that. Why would you have these cultist masks just for this? I'll tell you why. The directors have heard this term called elevated horror, and they think this is it. I'm not kidding. <laughs> oh, jeez. They kept talking in the press junkets about how this elevated horror is this new way of being real with horror and having spooky things. They think this is there with Get Out. Hmm. Okay. And admittedly, I wanted to get out. Yeah, I, I mean... All right, I already had my problems with them on the on the last film, but that's irritating, and I'm just going to move along. But, <laughs> I can hear it in your voice. <laughs> yeah, I, I will leave it at, so you're telling me that they're making pretentious decisions they can't justify. Yes. In fact, I was very let down by any story questions they were asked or any anything. They loved working with the actor. It just felt so fluffy, everything that they said. I don't know how much control they had. The person who gave the best answers of anything was the producers. So I kind of feel like the producers made a lot of the creative decisions here. And the directors were just really happy with all the casting choices. But this Pet Cemetery funeral is creepy. It is weird to think that they bought 50 acres and never bothered to ask what's on the other 49. I laughed out loud. He's like, well, how far back does our part? You just said 50 acres. It goes 50 <laughs> acres back. <laughs> <laughs> and do they own the Micmac burial ground? I mean, do they actually yes. the swamp all of that stuff? Like, yeah. you know, yeah, of course they would know that. He didn't look into the other land that he was buying. You got a bunch of swamp <laughs> land that's been cursed. Congratulations. Here's what I wish. I'm going to just go ahead and say, like the first movie, I feel like they really rushed through all the story beats. And that I really wanted to linger on dread. And that I felt like this movie, not to say it's exciting, but I do feel like it's in a great deal of hurry to get us through the whole journey of all the characters. And I would prefer if we just ignored the rest of the family and stayed with Ellie. I think she's a strong enough actress. I think that her relationship that she's going to build with the neighbor, Judd, is the right one to focus on. He can tell her everything about the Wendigo and the pet cemetery. And, you know, we see him in the introductory scene trying to pull her back when she wants to climb over the deadfall and get to the cursed ground. That's the stuff that it should be about. Like, have her be the character that learns it all. Yeah, there's some interesting stuff. We see Ellie, she's afraid of death. She's talking to her mom and dad. Her dad's the doctor, so he doesn't believe in an afterlife. I'm like, oh, these are all interesting themes that we could really tie in and explore. Nope, it's pretty much just lip service. Yeah, King's book works because it is a treatise on death and coming to terms with death and when do you tell your children about death and how do you explain that i mean that was his impetus was thinking about his own child's death and thinking about the pet that they lost in that road and their children's reaction to the death of a pet it works as a theme in that book because it's sewn throughout rachel has to deal with it here 
I think you can't stay with Ellie because we need to understand Lewis as our protagonist because we need to know why he would make the decisions he makes. He is the one who everybody else is acted upon. Lewis and Judd, to a degree, take action and do things. So they are the only ones who protag to be protagonists. And yet you've said you don't think this actor is very charismatic. And again, I'm going to rule that Victor Pascal does not need to be in the story. I didn't like him in the first movie. And I do not think that playing it straight this time, instead of him being wisecracking, is getting you anything better. No, I thought they did the Zelda and the Pascal stuff a little bit better in this one. But I'm like, nope, get rid of it. Like as someone who hasn't read the book, not a King fan, I don't need it in here. Just make this about things coming back from the dead. Why do we have these weird subplots? Pascal was a complete distraction in this one. Not done nearly as well. You could cut. I mean, they cut Judd's wife. In the book, Judd has a wife. The wife dies. You deal with the death of a spouse in that. It helps the theme. But it's not exactly cinematic horror to watch an old lady have a stroke and die. Although they did it in one of the Annabelles. But... (laughs) I think that you're right, Stuart, when you say we need to focus on dread, though. Where I disagree with you is you say, oh, they're getting through this very quickly. I can't tell if it's because I'd seen the original recently and a lot in my life or if it's this movie. But I felt it took a long time to get to a dead cat in this movie. It was. Yeah, I agree. It was setting up the house, setting up the kids with the burial ground, pulling a bee sting out of Ellie's leg. I never even saw a bee. She was climbing. Judd scares her. She falls. And then she has a sting. Did they say it was a bee? I thought it was like a thorn or something. I did too. And then she said I was stung by a bee. Oh, okay. I don't know. She's a young girl. Maybe she got confused with between a thorn and a bee. Maybe it's like the octopus and Goonies. Maybe there was a bee scene that got cut. <laughs> that they cut. <laughs> but... I just am waiting because they're checking the boxes off. I feel it's paced nearly identically to the first one, and I have problems with that pacing. I mean, 100 minutes is uh, under two hours. So's the first. That's what I'm saying. I don't have that problem with either movie. I feel like both movies are rushed. I feel like they don't have enough story here for 100 minutes in either version, the original or this remake. Again, if you want to explore just death more and yeah, that sense of dread, go off on a different direction and do that. I didn't go back and rewatch the original, but it feels like it's almost beat for beat. It felt like that to me, and I did rewatch because they released it in 4K. I wanted to see Pet Cemetery again and watched it in the nude transfer. And it is feeling very beat for beat, especially when they do bring in Pascal. I was like, I'm surprised they did this. I think I can bridge the gap between what Jacob and I are saying and what Stuart is saying, though, in that he thinks it's feeling rushed because Pascal is rushed. Zelda is terribly rushed to the point that, like you said, Jacob, why even include them at all when they're being given short shrift in the edit we have? Yes. And I thought we were going to get more of them because we get to them so much sooner. I thought it was going to be an improvement because I remember with that original, all of a sudden you get all this Zelda stuff late in the film. I'm like, what is going on all of a sudden in this movie? Here, oh, okay, they're setting it up. This is a weird area that makes people think about death for whatever reason. She's focused on that but then it never goes anywhere the tie with death is everyone here has guilt and that's what makes rachel and zelda important i think you can keep that where i strongly disagree is the decision to make it i love lucy oh lucy she trips down the dumb waiter pratfall <laughs> as a as the guilt mechanism i mean i was laughing that is terrible it's- and 
so bad. I like the way they set it up. Again, very exorcist, but upstairs, this is closed bedroom. She opens the door. She's bringing in a tray of food. If I hadn't seen the first movie, I might wonder what she's approaching. And they always see is that gnarled back. I don't even think they say what she's suffering from. No. I don't think we know if it's MS or, or what it is. They do say MS at one point. Okay, I didn't catch that. Again, it's a single line like a lot of things in this film. If you don't catch it, you're going to be wondering. Truthfully, Zelda is one of the scariest things that I remembered from the 1989 film when I hadn't seen it in a long time. It impacted me hard, and it just occurred to me that I was... 14 when I saw Pet Cemetery and there were a bunch of 14-year-old girls in front of me watching Pet Cemetery they're the age I was Zelda freaked me out the little kid was scary and all but Zelda with the makeup effects I think Zelda scared me more because it was more real. It's something that could happen. Some spine disease. You know, I didn't know what it was, but I knew that it was bad. Here, I do think that the filmmakers watched a little bit of J-horror because some of the fast, jerky movements of Zelda as the bones pop out. And then later when we talk about Ellie, it felt a little ring. Which, of course, all took from Exorcist. I mean, that's Linda Blair spider walking. True, but that was never in the original Exorcist. And Linda Blair never did, like, the bangs that, you know, all the J-horror girls do, the black stringy hair in the face. What I'm saying is, I get the idea that she didn't want to bring the tray to this frightening thing that we don't even see in the dark. And that's great. Play with what we can't see, all of it, and the, the fact that it's sound effects, that she's going to use this dumb waiter. But when you actually, like, imagine in your mind the comedy of that MS sufferer getting out of bed, walking to the dumb waiter, and then whoopsie falling down the shaft and no offense to anyone suffering ms people with ms walking is not funny this setup is yes stupid. of course i'm not mocking a disease i'm mocking the idea that a child would expect someone with that to get up and go get their tray <laughs> And I don't even understand the logistics. She opens that dumb waiter. We hear it crash. She opens it and we see the food spilled all over. I thought Zelda was going to be in it. She's on top of it. Did she like jump down to try to grab it? I don't even understand how this accident happened. I don't either. But I thought like you, when I heard the noises in there, I thought she was going to open it and Zelda was going to pounce <laughs> like some creature who's mad that she sent the food up the dumb waiter instead of bringing it herself. Zelda is so poorly explained. And the way they do it, honestly, is jarring. And if I didn't know what I know, I think I'd be confused as hell because there's this discussion between science and faith. When they're talking to Ellie about the dead dog, Ellie's mom, Rachel, is like, and they look on from you from heaven. And the dad's like, well, we don't know that. And they have that discussion. They've been married for probably, what, 10 years? Right. And they have two kids together. And she now is asking, you mean you don't believe in the afterlife? <laughs> <laughs> I agree. What didn't they discuss when they went down the aisle together? Again, it was Zelda being so important to her. And if she's had to turn to faith to comfort herself over this guilt, you would think she would be with a man that was going to at least support that idea. <laughs> But no, like that he wants to tell his daughter at this point. I mean, she's what? Not even nine years old. There is no heaven. Seems a little bit fast. I mean, not to judge anybody and what they want to teach their children, but it seems like 
so much of these plot points, I get what they're trying to set up, but it feels, the word I use is rushed. You're saying because you're bored that it doesn't feel rushed, you want it to get to the good stuff, but I'm saying they're not giving the important meat of the story the time it deserves. Yeah, I'll agree with that completely. You see, the word isn't rushed. The word is clumsy. The word is poorly developed. Yeah, that's my problem because I'm expecting, oh, this idea of faith versus science to be throughout the film. Why else would you bring it up? And then it's not. I'm like, oh, okay, so that wasn't important. What is important in this film? And nothing else really seems that important. I was really hoping when they had this ham-fisted discussion at the beginning about you don't believe in the afterlife, that there would be some kind of revelation when they realize there's a resurrection occurring. Yes. And it's something Ellie's going to play with a little bit and tease. There's an afterlife, but there's no heaven. But that's just trying to come off as a cheap your mom sucks cocks in hell exorcist thing, like you say. It's not coming off like a real realization on either of their parts that their faith in whatever it is, faith in science or faith in religion, is shattered by what happens. I don't get that from them. It allows Ellie to have a dialogue with Judson. She's the one that goes over to the neighbor and kind of just walks in, invites herself in. He's a little bit startled by her forwardness. Oh, my wife kept shaking her head. She's like, what are they teaching this girl? She just runs out to this cemetery by herself and then just goes into a stranger's house. She was judging these parents. <laughs> Be that as it may, she's the one that asks about the wedding photos and tries to tell this old man that, well, if his wife got sick and died, she must be in heaven. And that gets the dialogue going to invite him over. And we have now John Lithgow in the film. John Lithgow, I mean, I was doing some weird connections with this movie. I'm like, okay, John Lithgow was in Raising Cain, Brian De Palma, Brian De Palma did Carrie. <laughs> Just doing six degrees of Stephen King here. He's good in this movie. He's good in everything. I was also thinking how Jason Clark was in the second Planet of the Apes reboot and he's in the first. <laughs> Lithgow was in the first. I think he's perfectly fine here. I think he brings the right amount and maybe even a little bit better than Fred Gwynn. I understand why he does what he does with Judd. I don't like it. I don't feel like anyone's landing something that it feels solid. It's okay. It's fine. Yeah, no, everything is just a line of dialogue, and that's supposed to explain it. Like, why does Judd care about church who dies the cat? And he's like, oh, Ellie won me over. When? Why don't we see any of this stuff? Why are you just dropping lines about the plot instead of showing it to us? I felt I saw her bond with Judd in that scene Stuart was talking about and by having dinner together. But yeah, we assume that they've been in this house now a couple of months because it's Halloween. They're dressing up to trick or treat. I think they're driving somewhere to trick or treat because God knows they don't have that many neighbors. Trick or treat, Judd. Give me some candy. All right, now I'm going home. But this is when he finds Church dead. It's not when they're out of town. So you just have to presume that nobody was looking for the cat until it started coming back that day. And Judd makes a rash decision. I mean, he starts having Lewis bury the cat in the regular pet cemetery. No kids in masks. And then he says, Ellie's touched my heart more than anyone in a long time. Let's climb these brambles and move on to some stony ground. And he says that and we don't feel it. We go, what are you talking about? Yes. Because that ballerina scene in the kitchen was all of 30 seconds. And so again, I go back to, if you had just told the story from Ellie's point of view, and we had no Pascal and all those visions and all 
that stuff they already did in the first movie that they're doing identically here with the dad waking up with muddy feet and all of that stuff. Forget all of that and establish a bond between this old man and this child as she's curious about life and death and create that bond so that we feel this moment, that it hurts him to have to tell her her cat is dead and that he would make this choice. I'm going to go one step different and say, I want to feel a bond that I don't feel in this movie between Lewis and Ellie. This is his girl. This is the light of his life. This is his star daughter, his everything. You could get rid of Cage in this movie completely and make it a single child. I think it would be stronger if you did, because then he could have all his hopes and dreams pinned on this one child. And then maybe Judd and Lewis become fast friends as they did in the book and as they did in the first movie. And Judd does it because Lewis is in anguish about having to break his daughter's heart. I'd be good with that, too. I don't really need a Judd-Ellie bromance going on. Well, they say that he changed her heart. Again, I have to look at things like, well, there's a single shot of a gun in a drawer so I take that as shorthand for Judd is suicidal I took it the same way Judd is lonely and doesn't have a reason to live and this child awakened him to the possibilities of life again Wow, I did not get that. It actually makes sense. Why else do you show it like that then? I thought it was Chekhov. I thought his name was Judd Chekhov and it was his But this is elevated horror, Artie. I'm looking for deeper (laughs) meaning. Not because I actually think this is elevated, but my assumption was this was going to be a higher caliber film than that original one. I mean, again, they're just dipping their toe in these ideas. I could be wrong, but I thought that with having a line like that, if we're to take John Lithgow at face value when he says that, and he's not just in a trance doing the will of the Wendigo, then I have to understand that there's something about being around this eight-year-old girl that made him inspired to live and to want to shield her from death to the point of doing something that he had already done with his dog. Now, what's interesting is the way they've taken away storylines that were set up in the book and the first movie. There is no Vietnam vet. There is no wife discussion about her being buried and coming back or any bull being buried and coming back. They really do just make it seem like Judd's only experience. They show an internet story about the bull. Yeah, they tease it. But Judd's only experience with the Indian burial ground is his dog Biffer. And Biffer was already mean. So him coming back mean, who can say? He has reason to to believe that Church could come back and be the adorable cat that he was in her life. And it felt like as he tells Lewis, oh, we need to do this tonight, that he thought maybe if you bury it right away, it doesn't have a chance to turn evil. It's something Lewis said in the first movie is, I waited too long with Gage. I'm going to bury my wife now and it'll be better. But I just wish I felt everybody's motivation a little better instead of feeling that they're checking off the boxes. But yeah, it's a really creepy cat when it comes back. They've done this thing that the zombies have one eyelid that's like half closed and one eye that's wide open. I'm like, did they really find a lazy-eyed cat? But no. I was wondering if they did CGI on this cat because those eyes are creepy. Yeah, I'm thinking they CGI'd it. They claim they didn't use CGI, but that they had a lot of headaches for using the cats. But I don't know what to believe. I mean, yes, seeing the cat, I feel like, yeah, it's ominous. And I'm wondering what they're going to do that's different. It's a good reintroduction. Yeah, this cat, great looking cat for this film. Like, great year for cats where you had Captain Marvel, great cat in that one, great cat here. 
Yeah, agreed completely. They said that they looked at the cover of the Pet Cemetery book and tried to find a cat that looked like it to go with that iconography. And I don't know that I actually pulled that, but yes, I like this zombie cat when it comes back. And we're going through the same motions we did before. The cat stinks, the cat's mean, but Lewis now takes a different tact with it. He's not going to screw around. He's going to now kill the cat and Judd is endorsing that. They have one moment where, like, it's, he seems to be threatening Gage. Gage is in his pen, and the cat is in there, and all we hear is really sound effects. But it would be enough for me to be like, you know, it's one thing that the cat is a zombie and kind of creepy and bites and scratches, but could it actually kill my child? I mean, maybe I'm just thinking too much of Cat's Eye, but I that, I think, for me, would have been the turning point of like, okay, let me inject it with something. And if you just not wussed out from that decision, movie over. I mean, really, he could have just killed the cat, had a conversation with his daughter, but he can't even bring himself to kill the cat. He could kill the cat and lie to his daughter and say it ran away. No, he's actually going to drive far away and just drop the cat off at a wildlife preserve, which is a much worse death, I'm going to say, than putting it to sleep chemically. You're now putting it out in the wild for something to eat it. Let a coyote get it or something. <laughs> yeah, it is not a wild animal. It is a domesticated cat. Now, admittedly, it's proven it could kill a bird and eat it on a bed. So maybe the undead cat could do a little better in the wild than your standard tabby. But... This is cruelty. What if they just made it, because they kind of hint at it when we find out about the Wendigo, that there is just some Wendigo spirit over this land where you wanted these zombie things to come back, and that's why the cat lured Ellie out into the street. I don't know. It just seems like simpler than what they're trying to do here, and just things happen by chance, it seems. No, no, I actually agree with this choice. I mean, it's, I mean, I don't agree with the dad's choice, but everyone does things out of, you know, laziness and like not wanting to deal with things. I mean, in the same way that Rachel put the tray in the dumb waiter, this guy is putting the cat out and saying, all right, I, I can't handle the tough stuff. And it comes back to get them. And in fact, Ellie is going to develop a complex too, because she said, I don't like this cat anymore. Close the door so he can't come in my room at night. She is going to take in that guilt as well. And that guilt is what ends up killing all the characters. I agree completely, Stuart. If it was the spirit of the Wendigo that made everyone do what they do, then that's not a human story. That's a story of possession. I would not like that one bit. I, I don't think this is a human story. I don't think it would have been worse than what they're giving us here. Well, Pet Cemetery is a human story. And here it's trying to tell us that the actions and choices of humans are what makes their own bad decisions. And I'd rather have a good horror film than a bad adaptation of whatever this story is about. I mean, Kubrick's Shining walked both walks. It had a psychological reading, but there was also ghosts. I mean, it's kind of hard to deny that there was also a supernatural element. And I think this is trying to do something very similar. I mean, we've talked about already how similar the setups of both Pet Cemetery and Shining are. Including now that Gage seems to have The Shining, he is drawing pictures, stick figures of Daddy, looks like getting hit on the head, a premonition of something that will happen at the climax. I found it a little tasteless that it's Ellie's birthday and she's like, it's my fault church ran away because I didn't lay them in my room. And your dad's like, here, this will cheer you up. Gives her a freaking angel cat. Like yes. a dead cat with angel wings as a freaking Christmas gift. And she's like, I love it. And hugs it. I'm like, this would make most kids cry. My dead cat. I thought it was a bear. <laughs> 
No, it's a cat. Uh, it's a bear, I think. It's a cat. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm not going to go with that. I want to also point out, I think that they don't do it overly, but I do think there's little Stephen King Easter eggs all over this movie, and one of them is at this birthday party. I hear Judd talking about a St. Bernard. He's been living in the area all his life. I have to believe that Cujo happened somewhere down the block. There's another reference that I didn't catch, but one of our listeners, Maddie, did on Twitter. He actually told me about it before I saw the movie, and I went looking, and the scene is so damn fast, I couldn't see it. But when the trucker's riding down the road... Oh, let me guess, let me guess. He gets a call from Sheena. Is this a Ramones reference? Sheena is a punk rocker. Yeah, because that's what the trucker was listening to in the 89 movie with Sheena is a punk rocker. Oh, I did not remember that. I just, I'm like, oh, there's a Ramones reference. Yeah, it was specifically referencing that scene and what the trucker was doing when it crashed. Even earlier when Lewis is climbing the deadfall and it's kind of a dream and the ghost kid is behind him, there's a hand that pops out from the thicket. It made me think of carry there's just visual cues they do what they can to allude to the best king on film I guess as a way of just letting the audience that's already experienced the story and knows King well of feeling like they're inside of a joke. And it's what they're doing. Obviously, it's what they're doing with Gage here because they are leading us in every single way of believing that he is going to be the one wandering in front of that truck as it's approaching. But of course, because we saw the second trailer, we know <laughs> otherwise. God, it would have been so much better if I didn't know. It would. I love the way that when she first looks at Church coming down the street, he's just like this black, it's almost like a CGI squiggle or something mm -hmm. like that. You can't even tell that it's a cat. It's just like an Moment of something evil approaching. I didn't know it was going to be the cat. They're playing like some weird hide and go seek or something where they blindfold the dad, spin him around, and Ellie is like hiding by the highway. I thought that was what was going to kill her just right there is her choice of hiding spot. Then the cat shows up and she runs towards the cat. Now, Gage also runs towards the road. In the first trailer, you see Lewis yell, Gage! And it implies Gage died to the point that I'm like, does he lose both kids to a truck? What's going to happen in this film after I saw the second trailer? But no, he's going to save Gage. This would have been a huge what the fuck if I hadn't seen that trailer. It's going to jackknife and the tanker is just going to smack right into Ellie and Church gets the hell out of the way. And I mean, it's right to think Church planned this, you know. That's why I was wondering, is this all the Wendigo doing all of this? Well, this movie, more than any other Pet Cemetery, sells the thing that once something comes back from the Pet Cemetery, it wants to do that to other things. I never got that from the book, I never got that from the first movie, but here, it's the slowest zombie apocalypse ever. <laughs> I think it's a little cleaner in this movie. I think this movie does a better job with motivation than either the book or the first movie, because in each case, the choice is made that I'm going to kill you because you wished me dead. It's true of Zelda, and it's true of Church. I mean, she didn't wish him dead, but she didn't like him anymore, and she didn't want him around, and because of that, she lost her life. And she will come back and be like Zelda to the mom. She's not going to be a killer when she comes back. She only becomes a killer when the mom rejects her. And I think that really the motive for all of the homicide is the fact that the dead can't compete with the living. Well, she blames the mom. She's like, you could have done more to save you. I'm like, really? How is she going to save you? So I, I wish that was all there. Again, they plant little seeds here and there. I'm like, oh, this is going to be better because look at they're actually taking some of this stuff more seriously. And then it goes away and never comes back. 
back. And that's the disappointment for me. I mean, I think it's there. I mean, again, I think it's the cleanest of all pet cemeteries is at least the motive for why these people die. Because, yeah, for the next 30 minutes, it's pretty much the same thing as we've seen before. Lewis who is the least interesting character in this family, is plotting what we know he's going to do. We see at the funeral, he has a look exchange between him and Judd. And there's a look exchange between him and Rachel's dad, who is completely... These parents, if you're going to have Zelda in the movie at all, if you're going to just keep that Rachel has this sick sister that has haunted her all this life, you gotta do something with the parents to make me understand the parents that would leave her alone. And with Zelda as the caretaker, here, there's just some guy who gives Lewis a nasty look, and I'm like, I guess that's his father-in-law? I mean, this movie operates a lot on shorthand and inference. Yeah, and that's what I'm damning it for. I mean, that's what I'm really talking about is being rushed is I don't mind a long movie that really makes me feel something when it meditates on these moments. But yeah, giving me one line here and saying, well, that explains these important relationships, that is not enough. That is not going to make the full impact when we get to the good stuff. But yeah, she goes off back home to be with her parents in the creepy Zelda house. Again, more Shining references. She's like looking at a dumb waiter and it's leaking blood like the elevator does in The Shining. I thought Shining immediately, only they cut away from it really quickly before it can be a blatant ripoff. And I'm like, they still live in that house? Yeah, and they have that painting up of like the two of them, the two little girls in the same dress <laughs> feel like the twins in The Shining. I mean, again, these directors, and they did it in their first film. They trade so much on retro imagery and the look of something already previously done. That's only good to a point. You have to bring something new. And what I'm urging them to do, now that you've made a new choice and you've killed Ellie, let's do something new. Let's stop referencing the old. Let's take it to a new place. I mean, I guess we'll eventually get there, but a lot of these beats leading up to it are identical. It really, the only reason you may think that Gage was more impactful is because he was so innocent. When you kill a child that small, all you see is the death of something purely innocent. I mean, of course, still a nine-year-old girl is very innocent, but by comparison, she was already sort of jaded on the world and questioning faith, and in some ways, the adult world had already gotten to her mind. And so that is the difference between killing Gage and killing Ellie. I'll say that if they made the choice to kill the older girl, the way they handled it, I like in that they don't just do the same thing with the older child that they did with the young kid. It implies that had pre-verbal Gage or barely verbal Gage been buried, he might have come back homicidal just because the knowledge of going to the other side and coming back has screwed with her head because she's older and she's already started thinking about death and thinking about the afterlife in these conversations we've seen. She comes back and she's not instantly evil. She's not instantly murderous. She's definitely creepy as hell, but she's got this, I'm back from where? Well, yeah, and that's why I'm like, okay, this is why they killed the older child, because she could verbalize these things, which if you're going for elevated horror, yeah, that you want that in the discussion. Like, what are you running from when you're running from death, when you're afraid of death, when you can't accept it? There's a lot of neat ideas there, and again, this film fails. It introduces some of those ideas, she verbalizes some interesting things, but I never feel like that's what this film is about. Yeah, you could be a little kinder here. I think some of these moments are good. I mean, let's just use the word good. Let's take 
take a moment and stop swinging the bat, Wendy, and just say, like, I'm going to bathe my child and brush her hair, and then I see the sutures. That's what I'm talking about. Taking your time to feel something is what I would encourage these directors to do more of in this film. And if it meant that this film was 20 minutes longer, so be it if I was feeling this way throughout the journey. And that's a problem I had with the first Pet Cemetery. once I became aware of the embalming process and the ugly factory-like machinations of death in America. And so I'm thinking the exact same thing as he's digging up Ellie is, there's no blood in that body, there's a lot of formaldehyde, and they take out a lot of those organs. Even if you're not a donor, they're not going to bury you whole unless you say it's a religious exemption. You start to stink pretty soon. And so I'm thinking these things, and then he's brushing her hair and it starts coming out. And it's not just sutures, it's like stapled through the skin, into the skull. I mean, what morticians do to make a body presentable for an open casket is an art, but what you don't see, it's like special effects work. If it's not going to be facing the people visiting, it's going to be a mess. And that really drove home true horror. And of course, Rachel is going to be the last person to be receptive of that little girl that is disfigured in that way. I mean, she's got all of these issues about Zelda, and Ellie is a manifestation of all of them. You know, she wouldn't even need to be having these flashbacks and dream sequences with her sister, because once she sees this little girl, once she finally gets there, there's like a traffic jam. Maybe it's an it tie-in, but 20 miles outside of Derry, they're stuck in, like, bumper to bumper. Well, that's straight from the book. She had to rent a car and had trouble getting back to Maine. I think they were doing that what got me is they just literally reversed the two roles they just took the script and where they had gauge they put ellie where they had ellie they put gauge because now this mangled you can see his brain matter dead ghost is appearing to a two-year-old and trying to get a two-year-old to convince his mother to take a road trip yeah, the mom is just like, I'm sick of this crying kid. Let's get it to the dad. Like, he can't verbalize that he's seen a ghost. But they're not going to leave that dangling thread. I mean, last time we were all like, well, what happened to Ellie? Because she got left at the parents' house. The fact that she's not going to leave Gage and that he's going to be a part of the climax certainly gives them the ending that they go with here. And once she gets in and she sees her daughter, again, this is the trigger. Up to this point... Ellie has self-esteem issues. She knows she's not good enough. She's not as good as the living. But her mom's disappointment is confirmation. And, you know, she even has a line of, Mommy doesn't want me here, and the feeling is mutual. I mean, at this point, she's like, Okay, anything that reflects on my own insecurity, I'm going to take out. And I'm going to make you one of me. And when they do stuff like this, like, oh, the daughter versus the mother. Okay, it's a nine-year-old. It's a weird place to go, but you think about the Electra complex, you know, siding with daddy. This is where I see, like, there's themes you could develop, but they just don't go anywhere in this film. And that's why I really wanted a tighter father-daughter bond in this case. Yes, go Electra. The one thing that worked, and it's the only thing that worked out of Pet Cemetery 2, was the weird, like, incest son-mother thing that caused Edward Furlong to do whatever he did. Something like that to show a father's obsession with a daughter would help me understand why he would take her up and bury her after seeing that the cat came back evil. They're gonna have a dropped line where Judd's like, once you buried someone, it's like an addiction. You gotta want to bury a lot of people. So is that the Wendigo? I mean, that's the only thing I can chalk it up to because it's certainly not intelligence. I thought we were going to see a Wendigo in this film. We will not. We do. Well, we see a picture in a book. No, no, there's a shot when he is taking her. 
in the montage where he's taking her and we're cutting back and forth and the dumbwaiter's bleeding and all of that, there's a moment where he looks out into the forest and we see the silhouette that looks identical to the book. So, Do we? Yeah. I didn't catch that. It's there. I was actually distracted every time they went there at the bad blue screen. That was intentional, they said. They said they wanted, once you went past the brambles, to feel otherworldly. So they decided to blue screen it all. It doesn't feel otherworldly. It feels like it's on a set. I, you know what? I'm going to go a little bit further here. I don't like the look of this film. I was very disappointed in the blue-green color palette. I know they have more money and it's clear, but the stylization of the mask, all of it just felt like stuff borrowed from other ideas and just not a very cohesive, impressive vision. I just thought this movie, part of the reason why I was had a muted response to even seeing it was that nothing that I was seeing in the trailers looked that compelling. In my memory of the original, as bad as it is, I remember it going, Totally crazy when Gage shows back up and goes after Judd. When Ellie goes after Judd here, I guess they try to do something different. She's going to shape her face to look like Judd's dead wife's. I wish we had some kind of backstory that would make that a really poignant moment. Again, we got a couple of lines. That's it. I'd like a scene at the beginning when they're talking about it. Again, everything that I'm talking about, building relationships, you can't just show a gun in a drawer. You have to develop these. You have to write it like it matters. And I thought for sure she'd be bringing Judd back too. I mean, I get that she overhears Judd tell her father it's not too late to undo your mistake. And so killing him is an act of self-preservation and they play with it. Again, they feel like they're in the shadow of that first movie because Judd goes up to his bedroom and in the first one, he got the Achilles tendon cut from under the bed. Here, John Lithgow's gonna kick the bed and oh, there's no child there. It's okay, I saw the trailer. He's gonna get it on the stairs. Uh, those ads, I'm telling you, they had other things to show. I Maybe they felt like they didn't, but I really feel like, yes, if you paid attention to at all, any advertisement for this movie, what little things they do that are different are totally destroyed. This whole scene over at Judd's, we saw at the beginning, we talked about this, the beginning of the film starts at the end. There's a fire. Judd's house is on fire. I don't even remember seeing that house get set on fire at the end here. You see them walking with a gas tank at the very, very oh, end. Oh, that's right. The dad held a gas tank. Just like this film that's supposed to tell me everything. Okay. Yeah. Why burn it down? Like, what was that accomplishing? Why bring people back? So Ellie is being rejected by her mother. Her mother is the only smart person in this whole goddamn movie who's like, I miss my daughter, but this is some fucked up shit and I'm not going with it. So Ellie kills Rachel. Yeah, I like that moment. Like, she just calls it out because, I mean, Ellie's laying it on thick as she's sticking it in her side. She's like, you know, there is an afterlife, but it's not heaven and you're going there soon. And she does the Jesus cuts, right? She cuts her in the side where Jesus was speared so that she'll die slowly but bleed a lot. And then finally, she just sticks it in and literally twists it. I haven't seen a knife twisted in a long time. She literally twists the knife. I just want to know how Ellie dragged Rachel all the way to the burial grounds. She's a zombie. Zombie strength. Yeah. I was thinking of the original Night of the Living Dead and the sheer scene. Like, there's just, it's a trope in uh, zombie history that we've seen the, the innocent daughter come back and kill the mother. It, it felt right. I felt like all of this stuff kind of worked in what they had set up to do. I was good with all the murder. I was good with the exorcist ripoff of there is no heaven and the torture. I was good with all of that. And then she decides to drag the mother up to the cemetery. I'm like, why? What is the rationale? What is... She just told the mom how much they don't 
don't like each other. Now she wants to be with her. Yeah, and if you're going to tell me that these zombies are actually taking people up to bury them, then there's some grand plan? The Wendigo's behind it all, I'm telling you. That's the movie I thought we were getting. What she responded to was that her mother didn't accept her hug. And so if her mom becomes like her, then they will accept her hug, I think is the way to read it. It would have been great if they had a scene like that where they hug once they're both zombies. <laughs> Maybe. Um, <laughs> I don't know about that. I'm just saying, if you're trying to tie these things, it sounds like you're trying to give this film something. It gives you nothing as far as that goes. I think you're being a little too hard. I, I do think that there are things that may be too subtle, but there are things that they imply and choose to leave to suggestion, and that can be very effective. That is elevated horror. But I feel like a lot of this is abbreviated. It's not elevated, it's just omitted, and that's unfortunate. All right, so if... Ellie killed her mother because her mother didn't accept her as a zombie. Are the people coming back bad? Are they, is the ground sour? Are these evil people? Are they just, do they view death differently because they've been there and they're cool with it? I don't understand now what it was. I was okay with Cursed Indian Burial Ground brings back evil. Now it's like Cursed Indian Burial Ground with a Wendigo brings back people of questionable moral judgment. <laughs> You're focusing on the fact that they're coming back. I think of it as more like they die because of their guilt. They die because they, they made choices that led them to, ironically, no solution. I mean, that's the point to fixate on. The fact that they come back is only so they could torment somebody new. Is there discussion of the afterlife in the book? Endlessly. <laughs> oh, okay, because I was like, why don't they make it instead of everyone going to hell? Because you think, come back as a zombie, hey, that's better than being in hell, or what I picture hell to be based on scriptures. Why not have everyone just go to heaven? And that's why they're so pissed when they come back, because you took them away from something good and they just go full evil. Again, I wanted more of a discussion of if this is all about afterlife or accepting death or rejecting death, just say something about it. This says nothing. Buffy already did that, Jacob. Can't do that. And I also want to say they're not coming back. Their bodies are coming back, but it's as the mom pointed out, you're not my daughter. They are burning in hell, but their bodies are inhabited by something else. Is it? I'm confused because if so, why does this something else want to bury its mother and then bring the mother back and the mother will accept it? It's stupid. It is stupid that Ellie buries her mother. I tried to go with it. I tried to say, if I didn't know the original story, would I be fine with this? No, I wouldn't. This is just the dumbest ending since The Mist. Spoiler alert. She comes back to kill Lewis. That is why. Because we have a climax in the actual pet cemetery where Lewis thinks, yeah, I can take this nine-year-old zombie, holds her down with his foot, is about to drive this shovel into her head and decapitate her, and she's got an ace in her sleeve because she knows zombie mom is going to come back and spear him with the crucifix. Okay, then why do they bring him back? If Rachel was brought back just as a weapon against Lewis... Why bring Lewis back? They want a zombie family. I'm telling you, it is the slowest zombie apocalypse. Instead of a zombie bite, the zombie murders you, drags you up the brambles, buries you, and you come back a few hours later. You know what I actually thought we were going to get as, you know, we get this end stinger. Yeah, they're all brought back as zombies, and now they're going to go after Gage, who's been locked in the car. I do love when Church jumps on the hood there at the end, too. I thought they were going to cut. There's a Ramon song called We're a Happy Family, which is about a totally dysfunctional family. I'm like, oh, that would be kind of a funny stinger with this. That's not where they go, but it feels like this ending is almost a joke. It's like, oh, we're going to be a happy zombie family now. 
especially with the last thing you hear being the boop boop of the unlocking of the car. The zombies have the remote to unlock the car. I mean, I think that's effective. Again, it makes you think about that first image and you know that little kid's going to be dragged out bloody. Like those handprints are him as they tear into his flesh. What it is is they fell in love with this and they couldn't let it go. I understand the scripted ending is very different. The zombie family did not come back, and they promise on the Blu-ray that we will be able to see this. So all the problems that you're having, I think, are because they loved, yes, the electronic chirp of the ending too much. They loved (laughs) that image of the cat coming back. It's a great frame. It's really effective. I really felt like, wow, this three seconds is really haunting, but is it really justified for the ending that they gave us? Probably not. They probably should have gone with their other ending. They haven't said what that ending is, only that it's just as bleak. Don't expect a happy ending. There is no, uh, everyone gets away. But that's Pet Cemetery. I mean, the original ending from the book done in the movie is Lewis buries his wife because he wants her back now, and the wife comes back and is, it's monkey's paw. This whole thing is monkey's paw. I'll give it this. I may not like the chirp, but I want to end by giving this movie a compliment. I really do like its piano score. I thought it was effective. I looked it up after. It's Christopher Young. He did the Hellraiser stuff. I mixed on him because he also did Spider-Man 3. But here, (laughs) I think he does really well in horror. I liked his stuff in uh, Drag Me to Hell. As long as you're not complimenting this, I think it's Star Crusher or something. Whoever is doing this awful Ramones Pet Cemetery cover at the end. I could go along with the score, but that... I had this dreaded feeling. I'm like, oh, they're going to get a cover for this Ramon song. And they do. And it's bad. But see, it's females covering it because it's the gender flip. See? Uh, yeah, it's still bad. It epitomizes this movie for me. It reenacts the first movie, but it lacks the oomph. Like the Ramones are a gritty band and you hear their Pet Cemetery song, which I've listened to a lot redoing the opening credits with some new quotes. And it's just got this grittiness to it. This end version, again, I was thinking about Buffy. It sounds like one of the songs off of the Buffy soundtrack that was played at the club where they dance. This just muted 90s female rock. I'm like, you sucked the soul out of Ellie. You sucked the soul out of Pet Cemetery the movie. You sucked the soul out of Pet Cemetery the song. Trifecta. So you know what I think. Yeah, do we need to do recommends? (laughs) Let's put a button on it. Stuart, Jacob, why shouldn't we bury this movie in a pet cemetery so we can watch it on home video? Jacob. I mean, again, I'm not a King fan. I'm not a fan of that first pet cemetery. I'll say this is probably on the same level. They're just bad for different reasons. Like that one, yes, the acting is bad. My memory is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but my memory is when Gage goes on the attack in that film, like that was some really entertaining stuff. Oh, great stuff. When he's going after Judd and they did some weird like psychedelic stuff. And the voice, now I want to play with you. I love that stuff. Yeah, and this, I was waiting for that moment because I was kind of bored throughout it. I'm like, well, at least there's going to be this crazy ending. We don't get that. And that kind of wraps it all up for me. Like, oh yeah, there's little hints at conversations that are interesting. Oh, you want to go elevated? You got to develop all these conversations that you start to introduce, but you never go anywhere. And then when you get into the horror stuff, eh, I kind of just sat there bored throughout the film. Go look up that last frame before they get to credits. That's the best part of the film. But yeah, it's pretty mediocre and, and not that engaging. So not recommend. Stuart. 
You know, I had more of a wrestling than it sounds like you guys are. I mean, I wrestled with it like Lewis wrestled with the decision of, yeah, do we want this thing to live or not? Do we like that it's coming back with stronger performances? You can't deny that. Tighter themes. I think that the script and the acting is much better, but it's lacking suspense. And what that first movie had was, if nothing else, a great closer. And beyond the novelty of the gender swap, which, again, I'm so mad they robbed the surprise of that moment through the advertising, I'll never know if that would have impacted me during the watching of this film. Would that have been enough to get me engaged in what had felt pretty boring and by the numbers? By and large, this is a movie where everything is technically better, and yet I'm not at all excited about what I'm seeing. And so I'm not happy bearing Pet Cemetery or giving it a pass. I mean, I do think in many ways it's better than the original, but there's not a lot about it that I like. And so I guess that means Red Arrow. I wish I could combine the two. I actually think there's a recommendable movie if you could somehow blend the elements that work best in both movies and put it together. I think that that would be a good film, but on their own, it's two bad ones. And that's unfortunate. Listen, I came into this review with my opinion formed. We're recording this on Sunday night, eight days before its release, because I'm going to be out of town for a while. And Ranch Shazam. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we had Shazam. But I've had over 24 hours to think about this movie, and I did wrestle with it because I knew I was disappointed. I knew that I had bad feelings. The question was, and I just, I wrestled a lot with this, would I have liked it if I hadn't seen the trailer? Mm. Would I have liked it if I hadn't seen the first movie? Those 14-year-olds in front of me did not like it. They were pulling out their phones before the cat even got hit. But... Would I have liked it if I was 14 and I came in? I hadn't read the Pet Cemetery book when I saw the first Pet Cemetery movie. If I was 14 now and I watched this, would it be effective? And I just, I wrestled with that a lot because I don't want to say this movie isn't as good as the first one, which I do not think it is. It's got some things better. I'll agree. The acting is improved. I find Jason Clark to be bland, but I don't dislike Jason Clark. I don't like Jason Clark. This guy is nothing to me. He's like a glass of water and not like a tall glass of water in a good way. So <laughs> this is getting weirder. <laughs> yes, it is. I think the acting is better. I think the daughter acts tremendously. There we go. I mean, I really do think she's a star in the making in a movie that is not deserving of what she gave it. But I wrestled with, in isolation, do I recommend this movie? Because it has some effectiveness. I liked the stuff in the bathtub with the staples in the head. I liked the daughters pulling her exorcist stuff. I liked when they ripped off the ring and the daughters crawling with the stringy hair. Judd's death I went with. I mean, it has some effectiveness, so I wrestled with it. And I really tried to analyze this film as best I can, removing from myself life experiences that are ingrained in me since childhood. And in the end, I just let the hate flow. That's why you've heard what you did in this movie, is I've decided, fuck no, this movie's a red arrow, even if there weren't other movies, other books. The zombie apocalypse idea at the end is silly and dumb, and it takes too long to get there, and characters are not well-developed. You're right, the look of the movie is bad. It is worst at the Indian burial ground, but the whole thing, it doesn't ever feel very cinematic. I was left wanting, sometimes the original's better. 
Not recommend. Yeah, I mean, for me, sometimes when you're on the fence, the thing to ask is, what did you really like? And I came up with nothing. There was nothing that I really liked about this at all. I really liked Jatay's performance. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, I did like her. Not enough. No, and I kind of liked Lithgow. I mean, no, <laughs> I, I, I thought he was fine. Again, yeah. fine is not liking. And I kind of liked the suspense during the deaths. And I did like the jump scare, not jump scare, but surprise of Rachel impaling Lewis from behind with one of those grave marker fence posts from the pet cemetery. I mean, I'll say sometimes camp is more fun and that first one definitely is more campy. And if I had to pick one, I might watch that one again. Cause yeah, this one acting's better. It's just kind of boring though. It never has the heights that the other one does at the end with Gage. I'm going to reverse something I said on a previous Stephen King podcast. I claimed that the remake of Carrie was better than the original Carrie. You said that? I know. I'm reversing that because in time, I've completely forgotten there was a remake of Carrie and I have rewatched the Sissy Spacek one and I've not gone back to the remake. I think this Pet Cemetery is going to be in that exact same spot. It's yeah. a completely forgettable remake that I'm going to see on like flipping through the movie channels. I'm going to be like, oh, Pet Cemetery." assuming I still have channels by the time this hits and I'm not just streaming everything. But I'll be like, oh, Pet Cemetery is on. Oh, wait, it's that one. And I move on. I think everybody is going to forget this movie happened. It opened to 25 million. That's a very soft opening, even though it didn't cost a lot. I think the studio knew what they had. That's why they opened against Shazam in spring instead of saving it for fall when they could have opened it in September against no competition. Well, it is the 30th anniversary of the original being released as well. It also came out in spring 1989. And, you know, I don't think it's going to slow the momentum for Stephen King adaptations. I think that all of his big works are still coming. We're going to cover them. And yeah, hopefully they are going to be told with a little bit more passion and bring the stuff that we really like about the book onto the screen. I know we're going to be covering two more Stephen Kings based on short stories from his collection of Skeleton Crew, one that's very famous, The Mist, Thomas Jane, made about 12 years ago, followed by a not-so-great TV series. I already spoiled in this podcast my thoughts of the end of The Mist. What I think about the rest? I'm going to watch it for the first time since theaters. And then I looked into what it was, because this other one nobody knows about. It's called Mercy. It was based on a story called Grandma about witches. And it's got two alums from American Horror Story, Dylan McDermott, Francis O'Connor, as well as indie darling Mark Duplass, one of the Duplass brothers. Who knows what that's going to be like? It's even recent. It came out in 2014. But, you know, there were a lot of King movies before it that just... I knew they made a movie of Cell with Sam Jackson and John Cusack, but does anybody really know that? It never came to theaters. Is that different than The Cell with Jennifer Lopez? Yes, this is his cell phone zombie book. Oh, cell phone zombies. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Before it... I don't feel like if you had a Stephen King thing, it got any traction at all. That didn't seem to mean anything to anybody throughout the last 10 years until, yeah, it's two years ago. That's going to be obviously very big when we get that movie. We're building towards it. Chapter two this September. I have high hopes. I like the first part. I will just go ahead and spoil a little bit. I thought they took the easy route by taking the best stuff out of the novel and putting it in the first movie. All the hard stuff, all the, the weird stuff, I'm not sure they can pull off with turtles uh <laughs> space clowns well we'll see what they can do they got a good cast but uh I, i'm hopeful i'm rooting for them but it's going to be hard to pull off chapter two and there is a third stephen king adaptation coming out this year in the tall grass 
being released by Netflix some point this year. Well, there, then there's a fourth one because there's the one I'm really <laughs> excited about. This November, we're getting the sequel to The Shining. Dr. Sleep is hitting and it's little Danny Torrance all grown up to being Ewan McGregor. And he's now using his shining power to fight vampires, apparently. It's being directed by Mike Flanagan, who did a really good job turning Shirley Jackson's Haunting of Hill House into a very credible season of TV on Netflix. I don't know if you guys saw that show. Yep. Heard good things. Yeah. And I think that he's going to do a really good job. I don't know how good the Stephen King book of Dr. Sleep is, but I look forward to reading it. And I really do look forward to seeing another chapter in The Shining Saga. You can hear Artie talk all about it. (laughs) Yeah, I reviewed Dr. Sleep out of order because it was a sequel to The Shining and the first time King had ever done a real sequel novel other than Gunslinger. So I read and reviewed that very early on in the King book series. Spoiler alert, it is no Shining. Yeah, I I didn't think that it would be. But again, I'm still excited, and you can't change that. I'm more excited than James Wan tackling Tommyknockers, which is apparently something in development. But most of the other King stuff that I'm hearing about, it's all TV. It's, you know, The Stand's coming back as a TV series. Dark Tower's going to be a TV series. Another season of Castle Rock. Another season of Mr. Mercedes. Scott Derrickson is working on a theatrical adaptation of The Breathing Method, the different season's fourth story. That won't happen. I'm just going to go ahead and <laughs> stitch my flag in the sour ground and say that story is not good enough and it's just not going to happen. Coming out 2020 is what they say. All right. I could be wrong. And Scott Derrickson is not currently working on Doctor Strange 2. Meanwhile, something that definitely is coming out and we delayed because it came out uh, this past weekend, Hellboy. But we're going to make good. We have already covered the first two Hellboys comic book movie adaptations. And so we're going to see how this reboot does next week. Of the three theatrical releases we've reviewed in a row, my hopes went down a stair step for each one. But you know what? Low expectations can be great for a movie sometimes. If you go in thinking it's not going to be good and you're blown away, that's an amazing experience. So I hope I'm in for an amazing experience. (laughs) And meanwhile, we're going to get back into the summer of 1989. My favorite season of movie going happened 30 years ago, and we're going to go back and hit all the highlights that weren't franchise films we've already covered it now playing. It kicks off with Dead Poet Society this Friday. A little outside our usual fare, not superheroes, not horror, but drama with Robin Williams. Yeah, it's a classic. I mean, if you haven't seen it, you probably should. And you can join us this Friday if you become a gold level donor. We hope you will. It's your donation that helps us do this thing like four weeks of new release movies in a row. You know, it's honestly harder to do new release movies. It's harder to schedule and work and edit fast than it is to do like do the right thing, which we can record ahead of time and get out in easy time. And it's donors that make this possible, make it possible for us to pay our editors, make it possible for us to do everything that needs to be done. We hope you can support us this season at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate or nowplayingpatron.com. If you're $25 or more, you're going to get the gold level podcast and you got Shazam early. You got Pet Cemetery early. It's not going to be as early, but you're also going to hear Hellboy before everybody else. So there's that too. And until next week, fuck off, hairball. Lewis? Yeah? Not one word about what we've done tonight. What did we do tonight, Judd? 
What we did, Lois, was a secret thing. Women are supposed to be the ones who are good at keeping secrets. But any woman who knows them at all will tell you she's never seen into a man's heart. The soil of a man's heart, Lois, is stonier. Like the soil up there in the old Micmac burying ground. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. We played, Daddy. We had an awful good time. Now that you've heard the movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear Arnie's reviews and analysis of Stephen King's original short stories and novels. Yeah, that's a good story. A good walk. I'll take you up there sometime. Tell you the story, too. And come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com to hear our reviews of other Stephen King movies, such as Carrie, The Shining, Children of the Corn, Cujo, and dozens more in our archive section. Place where the dead speak. Also on our site, hear reviews of other films such as Maniac, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Saw, Riddick, Friday the 13th, The Avengers films, Star Trek, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com and come back each week for another new movie review. Let's go, Doc. I don't like this dream. Who said you were dreaming? Also at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book, you can order Now Playing's film review collection, Underrated Movies We Recommend. This book has 125 reviews about films you probably haven't seen, but you should. Come on, Doc. Don't make me tell you twice. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. I think you're going to be just as happy as a clam here, Ellen Green. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. The whole town's been using this place for generations. Folks make a kind of ritual out of it. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. I want to help you because you tried to help me. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. I bought you something, Mommy. I bought you something, Mommy. Now Playing's Pet Cemetery series is edited by Arnie. Well, sometimes that is better. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. Stay with me! <laughs> that is better! <laughs> The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. The barrier was not meant to be crossed. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts, and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. God sees the truth, but waits. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2019. All rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. No brain, no pain. Think about it. The soil of a man's heart is stonier, Lewis. Man grows what he can, and he tends it. Because what you buy 
what you owe. What you owe always comes home to you. I think sometimes dead is better. Maybe they should have just said, sometimes it might be better if you stay dead. You know, just don't go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Gwyn, because in this case, you're going to lose. That is a first, I think. Don't go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Fred Gwynn. That, yeah. <laughs> have you seen the Munsters movie? That person failed too. Fred Gwynn owns everything. <laughs> <laughs> I went on a Saturday afternoon, 4.50 showing. You know, that's usually a weird time to go anyway. He's got that matinee price. I don't know. I pay the flat fee every month for movies now to AMC. So <laughs> it was the nice recliner theater where they'll deliver your sodas to your chair. I like that. <laughs> I was wondering how 14-year-olds were going to take to this, especially when they were cooing over Tom Holland when he <laughs> had a flash screen in the Avengers Endgame trailer. Did you guys know, like, Tom Holland's the new Edward from Twilight for tweens? I didn't know that. No, I don't hang out with many tweens. I was not aware. Nope. Nope. <laughs> 